Blog Talk Radio. Much needed normal, and um, 
these are issues that could raise your consciousness or, you know what, take in collectively, even save the world. Uh, it's all stuff mom probably taught you to never discuss at the dinner table, sex, religion, power, politics, uh, gender. But I say, you know what, fear not. Uh, taste the forbidden fruit. Uh, open your mind to what the status quo, the patriarchy, um, considers off limits. Uh, unlock your transformational toolkit and empower yourself as you learn long hidden truths uh, from your home altar to the voting booth. Learn what denying the feminine face of God, uh, deity, archetype, or ideal, the feminine values in society has cost humanity, particularly women. And today, uh, it is my great pleasure to be talking about restoring sisterhood with Beth Bartlett. Uh, Beth is a PhD, uh, obviously educator, author, activist, a spiritual companion. Uh, she's a professor emer uh, emerita of women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh, she's an author of numerous books and articles, including Journey of the Heart, uh, Spiritual Insights on the Road to a Transplant, also Rebellious Feminism, Camus' uh, Ethic of Rebellion and Feminist Thought, and also Making Waves, Grassroots Feminism in Duluth and Superior. Uh, she's been active in feminist peace and justice and rights of nature and climate justice movements and has uh, been a committed advocate uh, for water protectors. And um, as I said, she's here with me today discussing restoring sisterhood, and she is actually going to be back at the end of March, and uh, at that time, we're going to delve into um, how the trauma from the burning times actually lives on today. Um, so anyway, uh, let's get to it. Uh, Beth, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Thank you, Karen. It's, it's an honor to be here, and I'm just, I'm just so grateful that you have this podcast. It's a oh, really, well, really important you. thing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we have to do whatever we can to rattle the cages and uh, uh, upset the status quo, you know. I mean, I was one of these girls that sat at the dinner table and, you know, we could never talk about the topics that really affected our life. And, uh, you know, it's about time we did, don't you think? <laughs> yes, I think I was one of the ones who didn't even know about the issues that were affecting my life until you know, later on well, until yeah. my 20s. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. for me, it was a little bit later. It was my 30s. Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt, a Catholic in New Orleans, and uh, we didn't hear about stuff like this. You know, it, it actually right. took moving to California, and uh, then my eyes opened to so much more, you know, that uh, that, that bubble was burst. Um, and, uh, and, you know, speaking of patriarchy, you know, uh, one of the things we were going to talk about today is, you know, the tactics of patriarchy, how they divide and conquer uh, women and uh, prevent us from, you know, coming together. Um, because, I mean, after all, we are the majority in the country. If there were a way we could actually come together, uh, we could really make a difference. And talk to the audience, if you would, um, Beth, about these tactics and how that affects, you know, the domino effect of it. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to go way back. 
um, to sure. begin with the patriarchy. Because I think that's that's what you need to understand to see how that's still going on. Um, and I, I'm assuming your audience is aware, but I don't know, um, that patriarchy has only been in existence for five to 7,000 years. Um, and prior to that, there were egalitarian, peaceful partnership societies. I know you had Rianne Eisler on a few weeks ago, and I, I learned so much from her about this. Um, but in those civilizations, women were celebrated and the goddess was worshipped. Um, but with the rise of patriarchy, what you have is introduction of hierarchy for the first time and a stratification of women by their role. And so you have this kind of pyramid of the highest status was the first wife, then there were second and third and fourth and fifth and so on wives, then there were concubines who were essentially sex slaves, then there were the female slaves in the house, the domestics, the ones who who worked around the house and in the, in the yards, and then there were at the bottom were girls and women who were sold into prostitution. And each rank had more or less privileges and status, as did their children. And so it sowed those seeds of competition and jealousy that had never existed in those early partnership societies. Um, but in order to advance, uh, to give a better life to yourself and to your children, um, in that in that kind of hierarchy, it, it, that was the first thing that happened that created those divisions. And I see, think you see those to the present day, um, that the various ways that women are jealous of each other and um, and are jealous of rank and status. Um, yeah, I mean had, we're you know competing for jobs and men and uh, you know among ourselves for her recognition maybe. Right. I also think you mentioned the burning times, and I think that that did a lot also to create those seeds of division between women because at that time women were forced to turn on other women and to turn in other women that, to accuse them of witchcraft in order to save themselves. Um, and and then women that were forbidden from gathering in um, at all, uh, had to gather in secret. Um, they could no longer practice midwifery. They couldn't turn to each other for, for aid. Um, so there was, there's that um, as well that I think lives on, and I'll talk about that more the next time we get together. Um, but there's okay. also, um, in, in the second sex, Simone de Beauvoir talks not so much about how women have become divided, but rather why they don't come together. Um, and I think some things have changed. And she wrote that she was talking about how women don't have a common history or language or religion to bind them together. And I think some of that's changed with the feminist spirituality movement, um, but those who are aware of it. Um, and But for the most part, we are divided by by religion. Uh, we don't have those common places of work. Um, I think it's important that there are podcasts like this, that there are blogs like the Feminism and Religion one, that there are groups like Women's March that bring women together. But for the most part, we're still pretty divided, isolated in our homes. 
Um, but you also yeah. talked about how women's loyalties will go to the men of their race and class and ethnicity and feel stronger affiliations by race and class. And I think you still see that today. And that's very much it yeah. in the world today. Well, yeah. I, I mean, you see women who will, you know, stand by their man or their party or whatever it is, even if it's against their economic or, uh, um, you know, all, all sorts of interests, you know, not just even economic, mm-hmm. or, you know, they're supporting uh, men who are sexist or racists and, um, you know, and, and, it, 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 and I think sometimes it has to do with, uh, economic interests, you know, um, maybe they depend on uh, that other paycheck to be able to make it to support the kids, uh, you know, th- that sort of thing. I, I mean, I think in a way that's why the right is so much against abortion because um, really uh, giving birth, uh, I mean, this isn't, you know, to denigrate women who choose to have children, but it shackles women for a long period of time and uh, prevents mm-hmm. them from being able to do so many things. Um, would you say that that's, that's even one of these um, methods or tactics that patriarchy uses to, um, you know, divide and conquer women? I mean, certainly, <laughs> it does. Yeah, um, it, that the you know it's important. Or I would I would combine not just not just patriarchy but white patriarchy, white supremacist patriarchy. Um, that it's in the interest of white supremacist domination to maintain control over all women's bodies to um, to make it more difficult for women of color i think um, and and trying i mean so many laws that are that are written about women's um, reproductive rights are about men's control over women's bodies, and yes, that prevents an awful lot of bonding among women, yeah. Well, um, and, 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 you know, we know this, you know, because we've been reading about it, talking about it, but, um, you know, having come here from Los Angeles to Southern Oregon, I realize that a lot of women here haven't heard this perspective. You know, um, I'm leading a a group, a Chalice and the Blade group, uh, you know, reading that book again. And um, Mm -hmm. I hadn't actually read it since the 90s, so it's a refresher for me. And, you know, one of the women said, I read the book three times and I don't get it, you know. Mm. And um, so I, I think sometimes, you know, some of this stuff makes sense to us. Uh, but if you if it, if this is the first time you're hearing it, I think sometimes we have to really connect those dots. And and uh, I, I mean, I know I was just talking to a woman recently about the idea of abortion, and I said, well, you know, do you realize that if when a woman becomes pregnant, it affects her emotional life, her economic life, her uh, educational life, and all of that go, you know is put on hold. And then if she plans to keep the baby, it affects her for the next 18 years, you know, unlike it affects uh, the man generally in the house. And, uh, you know, I think some women haven't been um, spoken to like that, and I don't mean that in a demeaning way, but they haven't heard that 
side of it. You know, they've only heard, oh, the joys of motherhood. This is what you know. This is women's role. You know, the, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 they never hear the counter argument. You know, and they just think that they're supposed to make that sacrifice. Which is why um, conversations among women are important. Um, you yeah. asked about tactics of, of patriarchy at the beginning, and right. Um, I think one of the biggest ones is um, silencing women and um, and sowing distrust among women and women learning to not be honest and open with each other because of that and those and th- that silence and the lying that happens among women is one of the greatest tools of patriarchy. Um, it, it prevents the sharing of knowledge. It prevents a shared understanding. One of the things that ripped apart patriarchy in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s were consciousness raising groups that women got together and, and shared their truths with each other and they realized, oh, it's not just me. And it's not just an individual. There's a whole system at work here. Um, so the yeah. more that women can share their realities with each other, um, the better. Um, yeah. Well, and I think some of those, um, you know, if we could talk about some of those other realities, you know, for instance, uh, still not getting equal pay, <clears throat> you know, results in uh, a majority of women retiring in poverty um, and just having less money in life to be able to do the things they might want to do, you know, that might be important to them enhancing their life or even just surviving. Um, you know, that that would be one if you want to speak to that or maybe, you know, you have another to throw in the pot here. Um. I think what I'd like to talk about is sisterhood itself, because I think it addresses okay. this. Um, right. That for for me, um, sisterhood is the foremost ethic of feminism, and by that I mean that um, for for me, sisterhood is not just about bonding over our common oppressions. It's it's about a responsibility to do whatever we can to eliminate oppression of other women, of the earth, of other marginalized people, that that is an essential ingredient of sisterhood. And that when you talk about the economics, um, one of the the most important, I think, um, responsibilities of feminist women is to work towards the redistribution of wealth um, so that women, uh, marginalized women, are not oppressed by such abject poverty in this country. It's about working towards legislation that is supportive of of women. I mean, they're, one of the reasons why having, having children in this country is so difficult is because um, there's no support, unlike every other country in the world. 
we we have no parental paid leave, or, and we have you know very little support for childcare, and we have um, we have basically no we have no health care guaranteed by the government, except unless you're very very poor or very very old. So. So what? What? So why is it like that? I mean, what? What? What do you think, Beth, um, is different about the American psyche that you know than say the Scandinavian countries who have the right. you know they say they're the happiest people on earth and they have all of those right. things you just mentioned we don't. What, what is it in the American psyche that makes us feel like? we uh, shouldn't be entitled to our tax dollars making our life better (laughs) is the way I'm going to couch it. (laughs) Um, I I think the whole mythos of individualism and um, uh, just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing that we're, there's not really a sense of collective, there's not really a sense of solidarity in this country yeah. um, uh, in, the, in the same way that there is in other countries. Right? So that, that's a, been a big part of the American mythos, I think, that um, has prevented that. Well, you know, well, I'll share one thing, because I, I do want to get more into the sisterhood idea, but just to piggyback on that, mm-hmm. having come from the South uh, and knowing that mentality, um, it was always, you know, the welfare queen and her Cadillac. Uh, that's, I must have heard that a million trillion times, right? And it's this idea that poor people uh, are getting something that we're not, um, and it was it, it's usually a white supremacy thing, you know. They think you know yes, brown is. and black yes. people are getting something, and and you know there's and it even goes to the point where you know you will deny them, and and wear blinders to the fact that you're also denying yourself in the process. And there's the swimming pool analogy where, um, you know, when uh, the law passed that you couldn't discriminate against black children and they could now come into these neighborhoods and you had to let them share swimming pools that until then had only been for white kids, what did they do in a lot of places? Instead of um, allowing that, they closed the pool. You know, so, you know, my my mother called that cutting off your nose to spite your face. (laughs) You know, um, you you give it up yourself, you deprive yourself so that somebody else can't have a little something, you know, and it's it's sad, really. And it's a real thing. You know, that wasn't a made up, wasn't a made up story. I mean, that's what happened in the South. Right, Um, right. But, you know, the idea of true sisterhood, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of us have, uh, you know, it's complicated, right? I mean, just like um, some of our relationships with our mothers, uh, you know, it hasn't, we don't all have good experiences with it. And I think it's, you know, because of uh, the seed sown, you know, by patriarchy, this distrust you mentioned. I mean, Phyllis Chesler even wrote the book, Women's Inhumanity to Women, which she got a lot of backlash for because she talked about the elephant in the living room. Um, 
you know, have in talking about uh, uh, sisterhood, have you encountered this? Oh, it'll never work, or you know, women uh, uh, just don't trust each other. I, I mean, what has been the feedback to your idea of sisterhood? I mean, and what would be a solution if you have had, uh, you know, doubters? I guess shall we say? I can't say that I have. <laughs> Um, it's um, I, I really have not run into the doubters um, and I suppose primarily my the people I have talked with and I'm thinking about all the students I've taught over the years um, and they know what it's like to go from distrusting women from not having any women friends to having wonderful relationships with other women as that would just come out of being in class together and 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 raising their awareness of the way patriarchy works to divide them against each other and and trusting women and sharing their honest experiences with each other um I think that's all that's in many ways what it takes is to share that um, to share those yeah well and and look and I'm not trying to be a naysayer I I really believe in this I mean uh, I I believe in the power of it I mean I'm thinking about the red tent movement that helped women come together Uh, in a way maybe that's the the new um, consciousness raising groups of decades ago you know um but uh i i do know that uh, uh you know there aren't a lot of women's studies uh in gender right. classes like you're talking about no, around the country yeah they yeah they're disappearing. disappearing so that was that was yeah i was just talking out of my experience of that but certainly um there are such such deep divides among women you know interpersonally but also Racial, class are huge divides in this country. Um, and with the partisan politics that we have, the polarization, I would say that the political divides are perhaps some of the most serious divides. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, so. just last night at, at our, uh, you know, in talking about uh, the chalice and the blade uh, in the very beginning, you know, Rian Eisler talks about um, how, uh, you know, dominator versus partnership societies. You know, obviously mm-hmm. we're talking about more of a partnership society where people complement one another rather than compete with one another. Uh, instead mm-hmm. of a ranking where there's a hierarchy, it's a linking, you know, where we, um, you know, all sort of come together, and, um, you know, it it was uh, nourishing to talk about potentially having a society where, um, you know, we value the sacredness of life, the sacredness of a woman's body, um, you know, uh, our men's seas, all, all, you know, all the stuff that make us women, you know, and, and maybe that's why I think the red tent uh, is such an effective tool if you have one in your area mm-hmm. because that's sort of, um, I think, a stepping stone to, um, 
you know, uh, maybe women who don't have a, a women's studies class or a gender studies class, they can find out this information, um, you know, maybe in their neighborhood, you know. Right. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, it's really, really important. You can't rely on the academy for that at all. It's so yeah. important that it be out in the yeah. community. Um, Beth, um, we're going to take a quick break, um, and uh, when we come back, though, I want to talk about, um, you know, you bring up Karen Baker Fletcher's notion of sisterist. Mm -hmm. Uh, I want to talk about that and some of the other things, um, you know, that are related to, uh, you know, to our topic here. So um, be thinking about that, you know, hold those thoughts, and uh, we'll be back in just a minute uh, after we hear from Joe Carson and um, her book, Dancing with Gaia. Okay. Hello. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is Drusilla Pettibone on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was very beautiful, and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast, and with so many layers. I am also pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. Uh, Dancing with Gaia is specially priced right now at uh, $9.95 uh, for the DVD uh, and the booklet. And uh, Laura Perry has a little bit to say. The Minoans of Ancient Crete come to life in Books and Tarot by Laura Perry. Explore the sacred feminine in Labrys and Horns and Ariadne's Thread. Embrace your creative side with the Minoan Coloring Book and the Minoan Tarot. Discover all these and more at lauraperryauthor.com.
And, of course, before we go, I want to remind you about the Divine Feminine app. Uh, Women have been finding the Divine Feminine app each and every day since uh, 2016 as a resource for finding local sacred circles, events, and resources. Uh, The Divine Feminine app has a new feature where newly added and local events are sent out every Tuesday. Uh, You can go to Divine Feminine app and register quickly, easily. It doesn't cost anything, and you'll find circles in your area, um, and you can also be put on the email list to get these notices. And as a benefit to listeners, uh, if you click Upgrade Membership and scroll down to use the code Sacred Feminine, uh, you get 90-day access to entering your own featured event, uh, which will be sent to local users. And it's not just local stuff on the Divine Feminine app. You will actually get uh, notice of virtual events uh, that would be uh, of interest to you, and uh, you'll find their retreats, profiles, and podcasts like ours. So uh, Divine Feminine app, if you uh, didn't know about it, uh, go ahead, check it out. Uh, There might be great stuff happening in your neighborhood that uh, you weren't even aware of, like red tents, uh, which we were just talking about. So um, getting back to uh, Beth Bartlett, uh, we are here today talking about uh, restoring sisterhood. Um, So Beth, um, you uh, mentioned Karen Baker Fletcher uh, and her notion of sisterist rather than sisterhood. Can you kind of define the two? How are they different, alike? Um, Karen Baker Fletcher is a woman of theologian, and she said that she used the term sisterist and sistering um, because they allowed her to be womanist. <laughs> Um, in solidarity with diverse types of women and feminists. I think um, in many ways how that differed from sisterhood is that when sisterhood was kind of the rallying cry of the second wave feminists in the 1960s and 70s, um, women of color found it uh, lacking because they felt that it was basically a sisterhood of white women that had not paid much attention to the very different needs and issues of women of color, women living in poverty in this country. Um, And so as part of that critique, the whole notion of sisterhood came into question and uh, that that there isn't this homogeneous group of women with all the same needs and values and and cares in the world. and sisterhood sisterhood also kind of had this meaning of just being our way of being in the world, that we just exist in this sisterhood, um, but not the kind of action and commitment that I regard as sisterhood. Um, and, and certainly sistering is a verb. It, it's not just that we are bound together, but that we need to act together um it's not sisterhood can be seen as static a state of being whereas sistering is a way of acting in the world it's a way of practicing feminism and for me feminism is a practice um not just an identity um right so when she talks about sistering she emphasizes a commitment to relationships um with room for it to evolve for it to, to grow 
for us to learn from each other and that we just have ongoing talks and listening and working and play with one another that I think is so, so important across those divides of race and class, uh, sexualities. Um, and the hardest one for me, actually, is the political. Um, how, you know, we need, just need to keep talking and, and learning and growing. I saw this very much at work in the feminist movement when when it was when white women were appropriately challenged by women of color and poor women and by lesbian women um, that uh, they had been left out of the structuring and the basic premises and the values of feminism and to its credit. I believe that feminism is just continuing to evolve um, and learn and and has changed significantly over the past several decades because of that continuing work of sistering. So let's let's you know unpack that a little bit. You know, for somebody mm-hmm. who's you know not really had a gender class or a women's studies class, you mentioned that there were a few different waves of feminism. Is there a is there sure. an easy sure. way to distinguish one wave from another? And are yeah. we in a wave yeah. now? Questionable. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, first wave feminism is considered to be the. Um, 19th century women's rights movement, um, you know, 1848, the um, Declaration of Rights of Women, the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York, um, that era. Then there was kind of a break. It, it, I mean, there was a suffrage move. There was an, a feminist movement that just focused on suffrage following that. Um, but once the, the um, vote was finally obtained... Um, it died down a little bit. And then Simone de Beauvoir wrote The Second Sex in 1952. And um, that kind of gave a big impetus to what's called second wave feminism that started in the 1960s in this country, right around the time of this, and in conjunction with the civil rights movement. A lot of it came out of the civil rights movement. Um, and then continued on probably, I would say, through the 1990s. There is some reference made to third wave feminism, fourth wave feminism. It's hard, you know, to say those later waves aren't as easily distinguished by era and uh, decade, but I would say more by the nature. I would say the current wave of feminism is much more pluralistic, um, much more um, inclusive of all races, genders, classes, um, and is aware of the of the need to be much more sistering in that sense. Yeah. Well, and and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because I'm you know always happy to learn and uh, you know and, and correct my uh, misconceptions. Um, I I think well you know I remember the Dalai Lama said it would be Western women that would save the world, and I think he said that because he thought it would be white women who had access to money and power would have the ability to maybe make political social change. Um, 
and 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 I don't know if that you know if he was ever questioned on that or if that was just sort of the general consensus. Um, but I I know some women have said that feminism you know left behind uh, women who weren't white, and uh, you know feminism was about uh, white women getting their piece of the patriarchal pie, uh, as opposed to maybe black women who their priority was maybe addressing um, uh, you know the disproportionate um, times that maybe uh, black men are incarcerated in our country versus uh, you know white people or rich people or you know brown skinned people maybe it's immigration um, it, it, it does, it, does all of this sort of sound accurate to to maybe put it in um, you know real terms about what the differences maybe were uh, you know, maybe the white feminist versus the black or the brown feminist? I wouldn't say it's it's a difference of the waves. I would say it's a difference of types of feminism. There are so many different types of feminism. Um, and what you're talking about is what I call power feminism. Others might call liberal feminism or women's rights feminism. It's not anything I'm particularly interested in. But it's it's what most of feminism is, the public perception of feminism is, um, of exactly what you said, of white women wanting to get their piece of the pie, climbing their ladder, um, leaving others behind. And that is exactly the opposite of what I consider to be feminism, which is why I say that sisterhood is the core ethic of feminism, because it it completely rejects that notion of leaving anyone behind. Right, um, right. And um, I would say the Dalai so, Lama was wrong. <laughs> um, okay, no, no, it, 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 it depends be, on that. Yeah, I would say it's it's women who have been marginalized who have the best view of of who and what needs to be saved in the world. Yeah. Um, and indigenous women have so much so much wisdom to give us. The the women of color have certainly known what it is to be oppressed in so many different ways and so have the clearest view of of what is needed in the world. So Right. Um, so how do yeah. you think uh feminism became uh the idea of it became poisoned? You know, that, that women um don't want to be associated with it. You know, was it the rights you know, propaganda machine, you know, the feminazi comments from people like oh, Rush Limbaugh or Yeah. Very much it was that. It was also um, conservative women. <laughs> um, I mean, Phyllis Schlafly and the Eagle Forum had a lot to do with um, with that in this country. Um, so, but yes, certainly there's been a lot of anti-feminist propaganda that is simply not true. Yeah. Yeah, I know I was interested in showing the film uh Fam Women Healing the World at uh, uh the mm. church I belonged to and I was really amazed that nobody was interested in seeing it. And wow. um it it was That's really bad. it was really an eye opener for me. Uh you yeah. know, uh that that you know they uh and, and I don't think it was uh, I don't know, it was I I intuitively I almost got the feeling that it was um, they were afraid of the subject. They didn't want to stir the pot. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it was disillusioning, you know. Um, so let's, um, you know, let's talk a little bit more about, um, uh, you know, sistering. Um, what ways have you seen, you know, sistering maybe help women, you know, raise their awareness or heal from trauma, you know, or abuse, right. uh, you know, toward thriving? Yeah. Um, the the best example I have, you know, I live in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, and perhaps some of your uh, listeners are aware of the Duluth model that's in the feminist circles. That's how Duluth, what Duluth is most known for. Um, Duluth happened to be just really a hotbed of feminist activism in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. Um, and many feminist organizations sprang up, but um, organizations around, specifically around domestic abuse, the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project um, has had, um, is, is known and used throughout its model, is known and used throughout the world for women who have been traumatized by abuse and um, and, and and domestic um, inter- issues and, um, and sexual assault. Anyway, um, the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project held what they called Education for Critical Consciousness Groups with survivors of domestic abuse. And they used Paulo Freire's method that he described in his book, Pedagogy of the Press, that he used as a way of posing questions and then listening to um, oppressed peoples of Brazil. And they took those methods and did the same thing with women who were coming out of uh, abusive relationships. And when I studied the feminist organizations in Duluth, I interviewed some of these women. And it, it was just, they were the most incredible interviews, I think, of the whole project. Um, and what they did was the, the leader, uh, the facilitator, would ask them certain questions, and then, like a consciousness-raising group, they they would sit in a circle and each had their time to speak and speak out of their own experience and their own truth without interruption, without judgment, without critique, without advice giving, um, and just to be listened to and cared for. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to read it, just some of what they said to me because it's best in their own words. Um, okay. The one said, "The one said, I didn't even know I was a human being. I was so dehumanized by the time I crawled into the women's action group. I came out of the shelter in Boulder, Colorado, and came home, and I think I was in some kind of shock. I didn't talk. And then to have someone treat me like that, like their sister, and discover that women are my sisters, I really felt that. Um, she said, we were valued. We were people of wisdom. We were people that had knowledge. It was the gentle, loving education that valued our entirety as human beings, which made us feel fully human again. It was like slowly waking up. We were creating this sisterhood. Um, they learned about horizontal hostility among women, but the, that were often the way they, women fought with each other, often over men, and learned instead that 
what was going on was the patriarchy and the way the patriarchy defined them and other women and suppressed their power. And they learned to trust their gut and they learned to trust other women. Um, and it, that was just, it helped them heal. These two women that I talked with, that I spoke with, um, these are just two examples, but their examples are so powerful. Women who came out of extreme poverty, extreme oppression, out of extreme abuse, and and healed and have thrived. Um, one went on to working with women who were recovering from addiction. The other went on to work with indigenous youth, became a leader in his community, and became the head of the city's indigenous commission. Um, those are just two examples of of so many dozens and hundreds of women who have been able to heal and thrive from similar circles. Um, and those have been ways of offering sisterhood. Well, you know, Beth, um, what I heard in that, and maybe it's, you know, because this is, you know, so at the front of my brain, uh, in January I published my book, Normalizing Abuse, and mm-hmm. uh, it's to make the point that we endure, I believe, this is my opinion, that, you know, just from looking around and observing, uh, we endure abuse to survive, and we don't even recognize it as abuse and exploitation. Right. And and I'm kind of hearing that in what they said, you know, that what they endured, they had just accepted it as normal. Um, I, I mean, right. would you agree? Do you think that's part of the problem, that we don't even recognize uh, abuse and exploitation when it's heaped upon us? It has been the norm in patriarchal society. So, yes, and I think the more you live with it, the more it just begins to seem like it's normal. And it, it takes, as she said, a gentle waking up of uh, to see that it's it's part of a system that it's not um, that it's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was in a in a woman's group when I was up on the mountain, and um, I just uh, I, I was trying to get a barometer check for the title of my book, and I wasn't sure what I was going to call it, and it led to a discussion about abuse, and I was more convinced than ever after that conver- you know that circle that um, women. Uh, or uh, blind to the abuse that they're enduring in their life, you know. Uh, they they really are just accepting it as normal, whether it's in the workplace or in the home or uh, from corporations or, you know, even academia. You know, who's the gatekeepers that decide what you can learn, what resources you have access to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, and, and I think the women were surprised, too, because, you know, they would cite examples, and at first you could tell that, well, they didn't see uh, what, you know, they happened to be talking about as abuse, but then you could see that aha moment when it dawned on them that, uh, you know, maybe maybe that was abuse, and I just wasn't, um, you know, I was wearing blinders, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I've talked to so many women who have been told by um, by their ministers, by by their mothers, by, you know, by society. Well, that's just the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, you know. And, and then, and, but in these 
other circles or said, no, it's it's not the way it has to be and shouldn't be. Well, you know, having grown up a Catholic, you know, uh, going to Catholic school where, you know, a lot of mornings started with church or going to uh, Sunday school or going to church on Sunday with the family, when, uh, you know, so many of your days uh, you are looking at Jesus on the cross and you're told about his noble sacrifice and suffering and you're supposed to emulate that and... um, and be so glad for that. I mean, is there any wonder that that doesn't sink into our subconscious and we get the idea that suffering and sacrifice is noble and good? <laughs> you know, um, it, it, and, it's really, I think it's a brainwashing tactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I really do think it's an intentional brainwashing tactic. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, Beth, um, uh, I want to leave you with the last word here. I mean, we've we've talked uh, a whole lot about the subject, but was there anything I didn't ask you, uh, any points you wanted to make uh, about sistering that, um, you know, we didn't get to yet before I let you go? Um, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Um, uh, I think the whole part about telling telling the truths with each other is, is so so important. I, I when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the way that we deny each other's truths, um, not believing others, and the way I mean, the way we've seen that so publicly with the Kavanaugh hearings, with the, all the um, girls and women who were abused um, in the the gymnasts uh, who were abused by the doctor at. Michigan State, um, and the way the way that women aren't believed, and uh, and the way that we need to begin with believing each other. Um, so that would be one um, one point, I guess I would emphasize. Um, I'll just end with with the very end of an Audrey Lord quote, um, which I think is important, where she says, "I am not free while any woman is unfree." even when her shackles are very different from my own. And I just think that's, you know, an important point. Agreed. And who was who was the uh, author of that quote? Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm sure there's yeah. a lot of listeners that are going to go Google that and copy and paste it somewhere. <laughs> uh, she is her book Sister Outsider is my feminist bible. <laughs> Okay, Sister Outsider. So much, yeah. She's unfortunately not with us any longer, but um, yeah. She's left a legacy. Yes, definitely. Well, Beth, um, I want to thank you for the conversation today. It's uh, gone way too quick, and uh, I, you know maybe some of the points that uh, we didn't get a chance to bring up today, maybe they will tie in uh, to the show uh, about the, how the burning times still mm-hmm. traumatize lives today when you're back at the end of March. Uh, I think that that'll be a good bookend to, um, to this interview here. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing your, uh, your knowledge and expertise on the subject. I really appreciate it on behalf of my listeners. Well, thank you, and I look forward to talking with you next time. Okay. Good. All right. Goodbye, mm-hmm. and uh, stay warm and safe. <laughs>
Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, I um, hope you enjoyed that and uh, make a note to uh, tune in when she's back uh, because, I don't know, I think uh, probably most people would not imagine that something that happened uh, you know, it, 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 during the burning times quite a while ago would uh, still live on to traumatize us today. And uh, I think that's a conversation that uh, will be quite interesting. So uh, yesterday uh, was Valentine's Day, and uh, one, of, uh, one of our listeners, Jane, uh, sent me some information about Valentine's Day that I thought would be interesting to share. And, um, and it and it was actually the origins of Valentine's Day. So, she, so the article goes, uh, on this day, uh, which was yesterday, and, uh, you know, February 14th, in 1849, the first American-made Valentines were sold in Worcestershire. Uh, they were designed and made by Esther Howland, the daughter of a local stationer. After graduating from Mount Holyoke College, she returned to Worcester and began making valentines modeled on a fancy one she had received from an English friend. Her brother took the samples on a sales trip and came home with an astonishing $5,000 worth of orders. Holland began uh, by hiring her friends to assemble the valentines. Within a few years, she built her business into a $100,000 a year enterprise, a notable success for any, any entrepreneur, but a truly remarkable accomplishment for a 19th century woman. Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, Pat also sent in an article about um, how these um, candy boxes on Valentine's Day uh, are all about, um, you know, the, the substance rather than uh, the beef, so to speak, you know, that these Whitman sampler boxes or the Russell Stover boxes that are so filled with um, – uh, you know the 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 cardboard and the you know the little black papers that wrap around the candies that the uh, a third of the box is candy while two thirds of the box is just the the packaging and, uh, and and you know while they do um, put on the outside of the box uh, how little ounces are actually inside. Um, in a way, it's misleading, isn't it? Um, it and, and, you know, maybe some would say even exploitation of a sense uh, because you're, you're buying this big box and then you get it home and it's two-thirds packaging. So did you get your money's worth? Did you want all the pretty packaging on the inside? And maybe it's even not that pretty. It just takes up space so they can put in less candy. Uh, I know my husband would uh, raise his hand and start complaining about the reason cups uh, you know they uh, now they cost more but they're so much smaller and I'm sure that's happening all over the place you know the packaging says king size but what's in size is actually smaller than you've ever seen before um, so you know something to think about um, I tend to not buy these sorts of things anymore because I feel like um, corporations or just exploiting us and uh, if there's a way around it I usually try to take that circuitous route and avoid giving them uh, my money um, 
And uh, the other thing I wanted to share, uh, and this, again, comes from Pat, our roving reporter. I thought it might be appropriate on Valentine's Day. Uh, it's a little Hellenistic prayer to Hera. Uh, and it's about, you know, love and those sorts of things that, um, you know, Hera, uh, you know, is to some extent the archetype of. And it goes like this. Golden Hera of the wedding gown, blessed lady of unions, bathing in the waters of purity, entering into compact with Zeus. Blessed goddess of the peacocks, divine keeper of wives, avenger of wrongs, punisher of the unfaithful. I honor you through sing I honor you though single, for you are divine and true. Thought that was nice. Thank you, Pat. Um uh, well, I want to remind uh, folks to try to get out there and see that movie, uh, Women Talking, that's been uh, nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, I think uh, it definitely pertains to uh, a lot of what we talk about here on the show. Uh, if you don't know, it's about uh, Mennonite women, I think, down in Brazil, based on a true story and a book, uh, how these Mennonite women um, had been duped by the men, some of the men in their congregations. Uh, they were given um, horse tranquilizers, I believe, uh, when they would go to sleep at night. Uh, they would be abused by the, uh, some of the men in the congregation. And when they would wake up with bruises or some um, you know, damage to their genitals, uh, the men told them that they were being assaulted by Satan. And uh, the movie is about the women discovering the truth and then making a decision on how they were going to handle it. So uh, this is, you know, this is kind of a heady um, uh, story that uh, I think, you know, women could certainly relate to. And uh, if any of listeners uh, have seen the movie already, uh, I'd love for you to send me an email and tell me what you thought about it. Uh, either catch me on my Facebook page or um, send me an email at karentate108 at yahoo.com. All right, so next week, uh, Emmanuel Etier returns to the show. I haven't spoken to him in a number of years. We're going to talk about what films he's up to. Um, the topic of our show is In Oneness, Let's Heal the World. Uh, he has a legacy of consciousness-raising films, and uh, we're going to be talking uh, more about that. And he's also going to be offering a free gift. So uh, that about does it for me today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please tell your friends and share the word uh, that Karen Tate is back and her work um, is her work. I'm talking about myself in the third person. My work, uh, I believe, is where spirituality, personal transformation, and social justice meet. Uh, so again, please go to my Facebook page. Uh, very, very soon I am going to be consolidating all my pages. And the only one I'll have is the one called Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. Uh, please uh, follow me there. There will be much more information uh, you know, provided there besides just uh, radio show information. Uh, also, uh, please go to my website. It is brand new. It is in the process of being constructed, but there is a lot of great content there. And um, it's called Tools for Transformation, and the website is karentate.net. 
So uh, thank you for listening. I know uh, you have lots of podcasts that you could choose from, and uh, I uh, am very pleased that so many of you have uh, come back to the show and um, are interested in what uh, my great guests have to say here. Uh, So uh, I'm just going to say find your sacred roar. Oh, I was thinking you'd be able to hear that. Let's see. Oh, well, that didn't work. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I was going to say find your sacred roar, and I was hoping you'd be able to hear it, uh, but uh, uh, that wasn't the best. Uh, that wasn't the best file. So, anyway, maybe next time um, you'll hear the sacred roar as well as me uh, saying. Uh, encourage you to find your sacred roar. Uh, Thank you, dear listeners. Uh, I appreciate you uh, more than you know, and um, you have a great week. Uh, Until next Wednesday, um, be safe, be well, uh, stay warm in all of this treacherous weather out there. All right, goodbye for now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.